We, uh, we've entered Revelation, last book in the Bible. And our approach to Revelation is the same approach that we have to the rest of the Bible. Which is essentially this. You, you never run to a meaning in a text without first understanding what that text meant to its original audience. And that's how we're treating Revelation. And we've already seen that, that Rev- Revelation is a letter. It, it's, it's a letter written by Pastor John to seven specific flesh and blood pastors of seven specific flesh and blood churches. And we've realized already, too, that John, who's writing this, uh, has been exiled to an island called Patmos. And I did a little research on this this week. Like, why is John on Patmos? And the church historian and church leader, Tertullian, who's writing just 50 years after John, tells us that the Roman emperor Domitian in response to Christianity spreading like wildfire throughout his, uni- uh, his empire. And again, you have to understand, this is an emperor who insisted on being called Lord and God. And now in his empire is a movement that says, Caesar, you aren't Lord and God. Jesus is Lord and God. And so to snuff this out, uh, Tertullian tells us that he, first of all, targets all the relatives of Jesus, including Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, Jesus' brother, and the church leaders. And John is one of those. Domitian seizes John, pours scolding hot water, boiling water on him. John miraculously survives that, and then he sends him to their equivalent of Alcatraz, Patmos. And it's while on Patmos that God provides John a vision, which John, in the first clause of this book, calls it an apocalypse. Apocalypse simply means an unveiling. And what God is doing in this book, through this vision, is he is unveiling what is about to happen to these Christians who are living in this province of Asia in the Roman Empire. So with that being said, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation 5. If you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty, mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept, and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Do you see him? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. 
he's triumphed. And he is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns. Horns in that world are authority, represent authority. Seven is the the number of completion, which is God's number. He has complete authority, the authority of God. Seven eyes, again, the eyes of God that see and know everything. The seven spirits, God's spirit filling him. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousand. And they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, what I want to do before we step into this thing is I... I first want us to kind of step into the world of, of, of first century Rome of Asia Minor, and I want us to imagine what it would be like to receive this letter. Because if you live in this world, you live in a world that's dominated by empire, dominated by this idea of emperor. And I don't know if this is hard for us to imagine. I think it kind of is, but yet, the more we live in our country, the more this century becomes a lot like the first century. See, Rome was more than a superpower. Rome not only dominated the world, but even more than that, today politicians talk about this idea of a one-world government. That's Rome. It's a one-world government. And Rome not only is a a military superpower, which means that it ruled the world by conquering the world. They're the stronger, the mightier, uh, and, and they rule through brutal force. They lead by fear. But even more than this, Rome is is the economy that 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 drives uh, the world's prosperity, and the world had never seen prosperity until Rome brought a, a whole new level of prosperity. 
world-class cities adorned with theaters, arenas, spas, world-class roads and highways, trade that went from empire to, to empire. And here's what I want you to know about that. It's not that Rome is just kind of raping the world of all its goods for itself. Rome is making its empire rich. People are prospering. People are experiencing comforts and conveniences and pleasures like they never experienced before. This is Rome. Rome, too, is, is not just a military power. It's not just an economic uh, power, but Rome is also an idea. It, it, it's a worldview. It's a theology. Now, all of this is, is based on something that might look kind of um, almost hilarious to us, but the whole uh, Greco-Roman pantheon of gods uh, kind of depicted by Mount Olympus, and I'll just kind of quickly show you a PowerPoint of this. Um, those are the, the major gods, with Zeus being the highest god, the king god, who also stated through the poet Virgil, writing in the first century, that it's Rome's manifest destiny to rule the world. Now, what I want you to know about that first century world, um, when, it, when it thought about God, um, they had all these gods, and each of these gods represent an area of life. You have a god for war. You have a god for love. You have a god for fertility. You have a god for wisdom. You have a god for, for your crops and all of that. And then with the worship of these gods were all these rituals that needed to be performed to please this God. And so the people were highly, highly superstitious. We can't make the gods angry. I don't know if you guys remember Sparky Anderson. Do you guys remember Sparky Anderson? Does anybody remember what Sparky Anderson used to do? Uh, remember he was a quick hook, had a quick hook. He would take his pictures out early. Um, and when he'd walk out to the pitcher's mound, does anybody remember what Sparky used to do? Are you kidding me? No one knows. Never step on what? Third baseline. Boom. He would just step over that thing. Every single time. That's what I mean by superstitious. Imagine being a Christian. Imagine being a Jew. Your neighbor, neighbors start to notice that you don't Step, that every time you walk out to the pitcher's mound, you just step on the line. <laughs> they notice that when it's uh, Venus's birthday, you're not going to the temple to have sex with one of her prostitutes. They notice that when you go to the marketplace, you're not burning incense to Caesar and, and, and putting his mark on, on your forehead. They notice that you're not going to... Uh, the local temples to, to perform the, the ritualistic sacrifices. So now imagine some natural disaster happens, whether it's a vo volcano or, or, or famine, 
And this superstitious people automatically are like, rot, this is on you. The gods are angry because you're not participating in the worship of these gods. Now, by the time of Jesus, there are two gods that are moving front and center in the empire. The first is the goddess Roma. Roma is a spirit. It's the spirit of Rome that promises you pox, peace, prosperity. And so temples to this god Roma are are, are being built in every city. And then right alongside this god is the worship of the emperor himself. In fact, Caesar Augustus, that is not his name. That is his title. His name is Octavian. Caesar simply means king. Augustus means to be worshipped. In fact, on the coins already, and, and coins are, are, are part of the propaganda. Every great empire uh, has a propaganda machine. And, and this is how they get to give you the image of Caesar and state to you who Caesar is. On one side of the coin is an image of Caesar with the words, Son of God. And on the other side of the coin is Caesar depicted as a priest with the words Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest. Because what Caesar is viewed as, he is the mediator between the pantheon of gods and the human race. He stands between you and the gods. And so it's your responsibility to please Caesar so that the gods will be pleased with you. And now you have temples popping up all over the empire in cities and towns to the worship of Caesar. Okay, now why do I say all this? This is the world of Jesus. This is the world he's born into. This is the world in which the church is being born. This is the world of those who are receiving this letter from John. And see, while the empire can be quite tolerant of of different cultures and ethnicities and and, and religions, it's only tolerant on the condition that you declare with your heart, Caesar is Lord and there is no other. In fact, if you want to know when most scholars date the writing of Revelation, uh, most scholars date it during the reign of Domitian, who I talked uh, earlier about, which is just 50 years after Jesus' death. This is also 10 to 15 years after Rome sent its legions to deal with its problem child, the Jews. Because the Jews, too, are a people who refuse to bow to Caesar. And so Rome came and crushed her. And so now Domitian sees this offshoot of Judaism in his mind. People who call themselves Christians, who also refuse to bow 
And also seeing that this thing is spreading like wildfire, he is about ready to just put his, his boot on the neck of Christianity and just crush it once and for all. That's the context of this letter. That's what's going on. And we learned last week that this vision doesn't begin with all this apocalyptic doom and gloom as we so often think it does, but rather it begins with this vision where, God is, where John is ushered into the courtroom of God and he sees God sitting on a throne and all creation, the whole cosmos, is worshiping him as God, as Lord. And I said, the reason why I think God is doing this is I think he's saying to John, John, I understand that you live in a world where it looks like Caesar is Lord, where it looks like Caesar is in charge, where your world is in chaos. But don't you forget, ultimate reality, God sits on the throne and the entire cosmos worships him. And this is where Revelation 5 picks up. And look at verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. Now the vision now dials into the scroll that is in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. And and the text tells us that it is tightly sealed. It's it's sealed seven times. And as I said, that, that Jewish way of talking about things... Uh, this is John's way of, of saying that this, this, this scroll, it's, it's God-sealed, and no one on heaven, earth, under the earth can open it. And here's the question. What's in the scroll? What is the scroll? The scroll... Because the emperors had their scroll in that day. The scroll is the edict. And this scroll is in God's hands. So this is the edict of God himself. It's God's plans and purposes for the whole world. That's what's in the scroll. The scroll is the answer to the Lord's prayer when you pray Uh, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's in the scroll. It's Revelation 11 verse 15 which declares to us the purposes of God for the world. His purposes is that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And see, this is why John, he's, he, he, he's just a rack. He's just, I, I can see him. He's just like, he's weeping, he's sobbing. No one can open the scroll. God's plans and, and purposes are, are, being throw, are being thwarted. I love this. One of the great, great scenes in the entire Bible John says, one of the elders came over to me and said, John, stop weeping. 
There's a lion. <laughs> a Jewish lion. A lion from the tribe of David, a Messiah, a king, one anointed of God himself. He wins. He wins. In fact, because he wins, he is worthy to open the scroll. And I can just see John kind of crumpled down like this, that elder tapping him on the shoulder. He's weeping. He's sobbing. He's in this place of despair. The, the, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And after hearing about this lion, he says, and I looked. And I saw him. I saw a lamb as, as if it had been slain. What does John see? Listen, before you just give your Sunday school answer that question, I, I, I want us to think about this biblically. John sees the one who God promised from the very beginning when Adam and Eve uh, brought the whole world to ruin through their sin. God says, wait a second, it's not all done, it's not over. From you, Eve, will come a descendant, a Messiah who's going to make everything right. And then God later makes a promise to his special people, Israel. It's a dramatic one. It's kind of just tucked away in Genesis 49. And listen to what he says to this tribe of Judah, the father of the Jews. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah, and you return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, be from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And then still later in the story, God chooses a, a, a king for himself, David, again from, from this tribe of Judah. And, and to David, he makes a stunning promise in Second Samuel 7. He said, a king's going to come from your lineage. And this king will restore and heal the whole world. And so they just in their minds thought, okay, this king is going to be from David. He's going to be like David. He's going to be this mighty warrior who, like David, put his own boot on Goliath and crushed him. He's going to come. He's going to crush. And then they read prophecies uh, like God's promise in Daniel 7, where Daniel's given this vision of the four beasts that terrorize the earth. And Daniel says, and I looked and I saw one like a son of man, one who's like a human being, who comes and defeats the four beasts, then ascends to the clouds, stands before the Almighty, and the Almighty knights him and says, the obedience of the nations will be yours. And this is why this elder can come and say to John in verse 5, do not weep. This Jewish lion, this Davidic king, he's triumphed. Triumphed in the original language is, is the Greek word Nike. It's, it's, it's Nike like the shoe company Nike. Um, Nike means the victor. 
the champion. But I want us to notice what this elder says to John. This triumph is not something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that has already happened. This Davidic king, this lion of Judah, he's already won. And now we know who John is looking at. He's looking at Christ. And how does he describe Jesus? This ferocious lion. He describes him as a lamb. Not just a lamb, but a slain lamb. Right now, we're, we're talking about one of the most mind-boggling things, one of the most beautiful things in the Bible, in the universe, that God wins. He wins by becoming a slain lamb. Meditate on that. Wrap your heart around that. Think about that. In fact, because of how John describes him as a lamb slain, we can know that Jesus in his glorified state still bears his wounds. We still see his scars. You want to know why? Because his wounds and his scars are not something to be hidden. They are part of his glory. Just like your wounds and your scars will someday be part of your glory. But when you read the Bible, you start to realize that the Bible is a story. In fact, it's a tale of two cities, a tale of two kingdoms. A kingdom of darkness that's at war with a kingdom of light. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the evil one. And the question is, who's going to win? Who wins? Do we need to be uptight right now living in America with all the things that are going on in the world from ISIS to the world quaking and shaking to our election and all that. Who wins? It's not just that he wins, but just as stunning as how he wins. I mean, it's stunning. Let's go all the way back to Exodus Exodus, we, we, we see this clash of these two kingdoms. We see the clash of, of the city of God versus the city of man between Jerusalem and Babylon. Babel means chaos. Jerusalem means peace. They are at war. And, and don't think of, of that story in Exodus as just Moses versus Pharaoh. This is God versus the Egyptian gods. Every plague is, is a plague directed to take out and to attack one of the Egyptian gods with the final plague, which in a sense is a sort of a judgment day, previewing the judgment day to come, is directed at Pharaoh himself. 
who's son of God. And how does God win? Through a lamb. A lamb. Because when God's judgment day comes down, that judgment day isn't just on the bad people where the good people are spared of it. That judgment day falls on both Egyptian and Israelite. And the only reason the Israelite is spared, God says it, when I see the blood covering your house, I will pay sock. I'll protect you. I'll cover you. It's a lamb. I mean, think about this. Israel got to walk out of Egypt free and delivered and redeemed all because they were covered in the blood of a lamb. If, if, if that lamb isn't offered and it's blood not put on their doorposts, God's judgment falls on them. And so we know all these stories point to the greater story in the Bible, that this one points to a greater judgment day, to a greater exodus. The day that the prophets would call this great and dreadful day of the Lord. In fact, they, when, when they described it, they'd say this is going to be a day of darkness when the sun is going to go out. The stars are going to fall from the sky. The moon's going to turn red. And all of a sudden I want to sing a U2 song. But I will stop. <laughs> But you two actually got it right. It's, it, it is one tree hill. It's Joshua tree. It's the Jesus tree. Because that's the judgment day we are talking about. It's the day that Christians call Good Friday. And on this Passover, Jesus became our Passover lamb. Because this was God's plan from the beginning. That a lamb would triumph. And God, going all the way back to Abraham, said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to provide the lamb. You don't have to worry about the lamb. I'm going to provide the lamb. And God said about this, this, this one who is to come, this, this lion of Judah, this Messiah, he said, he'll be like a lamb led to the slaughter, and by his wounds you'll be healed. This is how God wins. The one with all the power to create the world, the one who, through the brilliance of his mind, fashioned the stars and, 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 and put everything in its place, said, I'm going to become redeemer, savior. I'm going to win your weakness, weakness, powerlessness, through a lamb. Does his blood mean anything to you? His death to cover you? Because look at verse 9. You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. That's why. And because with your blood, your blood, not just your life, your good moral life, 
Your blood. Your blood is what purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that word purchase there is, is the word redeem. And we, and we talked about this several weeks ago. Um, redeem comes out of this context of, of, of the ancient world and, and how they did life. How they did life through, through Beit Av. Beit Av being the father's house. In the ancient world, all of life was, was ordered around the father. Everyone was under the father's care. Everyone was under the father's protection. It was the father's responsibility to use all the resources which belonged to him to make sure that every family member was taken care of, was housed, was sheltered, was fed, was valued, was loved. And what happened in that world is, is if for whatever reason you're marginalized from your bait off, you're taken out of it. It's the father's responsibility to do whatever it takes, to use whatever resources he has to get you back into Beit So redeem is this whole idea of being brought home. It, 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 it's when the father goes out and he seeks you and he finds you and he does whatever it takes to bring you home. And why am I saying all this? Because the one who sits on the throne in Revelation 4, the one to whom the whole cosmos has been created, to whom the whole cosmos is bowed and worshiping, holy, 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 that creator and ruler of the universe is your father. It's your father. And the one standing next to him in the throne room, the lamb, is a reminder to us of what God did to find us and to bring us back into the family. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is why Jesus says, I am the way back to the Father. No one can come to the Father but through me. And he says, I prepare a place for you, my follow followers, in my bait of, in my Father's house. And then look at verse 9. Look at God's family. People from every tribe, culture, ethnicity. You guys, honestly, this should cause us to dance. You guys, God's family is so beautiful. This is a fulfillment that God made, of the promise God made to Abraham that through you, Abraham, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. They're going to be brought back into my family. I remember living in Israel. Um, and Israel, of course, <laughs> Judaism are Jews. Muslims are Middle Easterners, largely. All of a sudden, we're there for three months, and it's Holy Week. You know what I see? I see people from all over the world coming to Jerusalem. Christians from Asia, from Africa, from the Western world. 
from every part of the globe. And I danced. I said, this is God's family. This is God's family. Now, what does this mean? This whole text. Number one, Jesus wins. He won. It's game over. It's game over. It's game over for the snake. It's game over for the beast. It's game over for the dragon. It's game over for anyone who is in allegiance with the world. In fact, the, the early Christians had the audacity to say to their world, Christus Nike, Christ wins. He's Lord. And they boldly declared that to Rome. They boldly declared that to Caesar. I mean, look at Paul in Acts. Paul is like, get me to Caesar. Get me to Rome. I want to tell Caesar, you're not Lord. Jesus is. They took this message to the marketplace. They took this message to the streets. They took this message to their neighbors. They even took this message to the arena where they went to their deaths. What about us? Are we shouting at our world, not just through our mouths, but through our lives, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar isn't? There is an amazing truth in Revelation 3, verse 21. You can go there and meditate on it. I will sum it up. Basically, what Revelation 3, verse 21 says is that we sit with Jesus who sits on his Father's throne. Throne is about reign and rule. In other words, we aren't just with Jesus. We aren't just with our Father in our Father's house. We reign with him. So whatever situation we're in, I, I don't care what it is. I don't care what circumstance, what it is that we face, what it is that our world throws at us. We take heart. Jesus won. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus has opened the scroll. The kingdom of this world will not become Caesar's kingdom. The, the kingdom of this world will not become the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. This whole world belongs to Jesus. I love what Corey Ten Boom said when she was in a concentration camp. She said, there is nothing so dark where he is still not brighter still. The second thing this means is not only that Jesus wins, but who are those who win with him? They are those who are covered in the blood of the lamb and worship the lamb. So here's my question this morning. Are you covered in the blood? Because there's a movement right now in Western Christianity that seeks a bloodless gospel, that, speaks, that, that, that seeks a bloodless Jesus. They don't like all of that blood stuff. 
He's our Passover lamb. And just like at the first Passover, when God said, when I see the blood of the lamb covering you, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to cover you. Nothing in these hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Look at verse 9. With your blood you redeemed us. You purchased us. Jesus lived the life that we could never live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. And I'll tell you right now, Caesar won't die for you. Your money won't die for you. Any idol that you have formed that you think is going to deliver, it won't die for you. There is only one God who will die for you. It's Jesus. Don't just know him. Worship him. Give him your total allegiance. Give him your best. Give him your love. Give him your affections. Because look what's going on in the throne. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever. And the four living creatures said, Yes, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Oh, worship the king, all glorious above. He reigns. And if he sits on the throne, the question becomes, does he sit on the throne of your heart and of your life? Make him your king. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, I know, I know this flock. I know that there's heartache in this room. I know that there's cancer in this room. I know that there are people who are struggling with their kids, who are walking away from the Lord. I know there's fear about the unsettling of the world that we live in. I know there's anxiety about the upcoming election. God, would, would you give us eyes to see beyond all of that, to see that you sit on the throne and that we could see the Lion of Judah from the tribe of David. He won. It's game over. May we trust him, surrender our lives to him, and may we worship him with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.